Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the political comedy podcast that inhales all of the news and breathes it out right into your face like a vape that smells of arse. This is episode 149, I'm Tin and Duyeb, and this week I want to start with some important advice. If you hear loud, potentially violent noises coming from next door and you're thinking about calling the police as someone may be in danger, don't. Instead, just remember that even if your neighbour is fat canary with toxic burns, Boris Johnson, and his girlfriend, who sounds in distress, what you should do is play the national anthem very loudly on a tuba, as you wouldn't want anyone to think you're a traitor. According to politicians and newspapers over the weekend, unless you're a card-carrying Conservative member, the last thing you should do is call the police to report what sounds like a crime, as actually, it's just an invasion of privacy. Spotted a mugging? How dare you interrupt free market capitalism and its core roots? Witnessed arson? Yet more lefty anti-fossil fuel burning bollocks. I bet you think they should destroy that home using wind energy, do you smarty pants? Seen a stabbing take place? Well... Hang on, were they black or can we blame it on Sadiq Khan? Because if so, I'm listening. Neighbours of Boris Johnson and his girlfriend Carrie Simmons called the police and made a recording after hearing screaming, glasses being smashed and lots of arguing. And while Boris or his pals might think that just sounds like a standard Bullingdon Club night out, to most ordinary people, they'd be concerned someone was in danger. Well, someone other than Boris. Otherwise, if it was just him screaming, I know I'd have been less bothered, though I might have recorded it for personal entertainment. Many newspapers seem very upset by the fact the neighbours recorded the sounds that were coming through their walls, probably because correct etiquette would have been to hack Boris or Simmons' phones, listen to their voicemails and try to record illegally through the microphone. Telegraph columnist and woman who looks like she's perpetually stepping on a rake, Alison Pearson, accused the neighbours of being like the Stasi before demanding that we find out their political views and everything about them. Either she's aware of the hypocrisy and is all about the clickbait, or judging by her recently having to ask the Telegraph to remove her own article about how terrible the voice is as her daughter's now on it, I think Pearson is just the sort of narcissist who'd leap out of her car to tell other people how to parent properly while leaving her kids strapped into their seats on a hot day with the windows up. The big question was why this should impinge on Boris's Conservative leadership campaign when it's an event in his awful, awful personal life. Well, firstly, because if he treats women in a way that causes them to scream like they're being attacked and tells him to get out, chances are anyone who's not a total dick won't feel comfortable with him in charge. Secondly, because there's every chance that causing a lot of noise and shouty threats in the early hours of the morning, disturbing the neighbours but refusing to leave on someone else's terms, is likely a good indication of how he'd handle Brexit. Yes, this is one of the country's current leadership choices, and while it's slightly refreshing that the UK is remaking an American horror for once, it's clear just how similar Johnson is to malignant haystack Donald Trump, not only in his mistreatment of women, but also in his connections to far-right minion with necrotizing fasciitis Steve Bannon. Footage has been revealed that shows Bannon talking about his relationship with Johnson and how he helped him write his first speech after resigning as Foreign Secretary, a job that Boris resigned from in protest of May's deal that he later then voted for. Johnson had previously said there was no connection between him and Bannon and it was all just a lefty delusion. God, these lefties, eh? Getting all deluded about things that have actually happened and showing that the country is heading towards being handed to a bunch of flesh beanbag fascists and calling the police because it sounds like a woman's being attacked. (laughs) What arseholes? Where will it end? I mean, what next? I bet they might try to rescue an animal or donate to charity or something. Makes me sick. 
Will any of these revelations deter the Conservative membership, aka 160,000 child catchers from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, from voting for Boris as leader? Unlikely, especially as the row was the second instant of Conservatives jumping to say that attacking women is fine. After Foreign Office Minister and demonic Snapchat filter is my default face, Mike Field, was suspended after grabbing a female climate protester by the neck at a mansion house dinner. Field said he was reacting to a security threat, you know, from a woman in an evening gown who's making a peaceful protest about how the planet is on fire. You see, we've all been doing it wrong, looking out for potential terrorists in balaclavas or carrying backpacks and weapons, or perhaps from men who storm leadership candidate debates to shout about fake politicians, like what happened at Barbed Wire with Lipstick on Esther McVeigh's launch two weeks ago when absolutely no one stepped in. Or during Prime Minister and rejected Giacometti sculpture Theresa May's speech at the Conservative Conference in 2017 when a comedian ran up to the stage to hand her a P45 and no one did anything. No, no, it turns out it's only really dangerous when it's someone who's there to ask that it'd be great if we did something about the potential end of humanity because nothing says beware like being concerned for children's futures. I'm not sure why Mike Field hasn't just saved us all by turning up to children in need and decking everyone in the face. And I bet he's glad Mother Teresa's already dead or he'd have had to leap up and kick her in the shins for the sake of safety. Field said what he did was instinctive, which is odd, as that means it's his natural reaction to grab women by the throat. And again, several Conservatives said it was the right thing to do, as the protester may have had a potential weapon. Isn't everything a potential weapon if you try hard enough? Couldn't a piece of cake be pushed into someone's eyes? A sock, some sort of chemical deterrent? Mike was sitting at a table with cutlery on. It's a wonder he didn't choke himself in case he accidentally wielded a spoon with hidden menace. The protester from Greenpeace is not pressing charges, but Field has been suspended pending investigation by the Cabinet Office, which likely means he'll be back in the Commons next time there's an important vote. It's very sad that the term Field experience now means having the instinctive skills to attack an unarmed woman. While Mike Field was showing his true colours by forcefully ejecting protesters, his colleague and nervous burlap sack Chris Davis was being ejected from his seat. 20% of all registered voters in the constituency of Brecon and Radnorshire signed a recall petition after Davis was given a criminal conviction for expenses fraud. He forged two invoices for some photographs he'd taken rather than submit the single invoice for £700. Those are expensive pics, but then I guess they would have needed a lot of Photoshop work to stop him looking like a long dead chinchilla. Davis was fined £1,500, which could have got him two sets of photos if he hadn't been a total crim about it. And the Conservative Party didn't throw him out, as it's likely they thought he too was blameless, and it was all probably just the fault of the lefty British legal system and their horrific communist inability to let rich people scam money off the public whenever they like. Who are these Crown Court judges wanting to know why Davis, in an important public position, was forging documents pertaining to public funds? Are they the bloody Stasi or something? I think we should know all of their private expenses and political views and their DNA codes children's addresses, favourite Friday night takeaway and their honest thoughts on various films over the past decade. There will now be a by-election in Brecon and Radnorshire, though no set date has been given yet. The Brexit party are going to be putting a candidate forward as they say it's clear the constituents want a trustworthy MP. Because you know what's more trustworthy than expenses fiddler? That's right, someone who won't reveal where their funds come from in the first place. I mean, why stop there? I hope Bernie Madoff runs just so that the people of Brecon and Radnorshire can feel really safe. The Welsh Liberal Democrats have said that this is a golden opportunity for them to win the seat, but what they haven't counted on is the Conservatives' very special tactic of, wait for it, letting Chris Davis run in the by-election to replace himself. Yes, really. No, he isn't even wearing a false moustache and calling himself Discravis. What you have to remember is that the Conservatives have an absolute inability to see anything as their fault, which shows how out of line they are with British values. I mean, if they truly represented the British people, they'd be apologising every two minutes and being quite awkward about it while insisting they were the dickheads. As it is, you should be able to spot one of the 160,000 Conservative members loose in the UK, as they'll be the ones that drive straight into your car and then say it was your fault, or push your child over in the street and blame them for not being more heavily weighted on their feet like a weeble. Leadership candidate Jeremy Hunt, with his eyes like cutouts in a shit painting of a pie dish with a startled seagull standing behind it peering through, yeah, well him, he backed Davis saying that he'd only ever known him as a decent and honest man. Considering Hunt wasn't even aware of what property he owned, I'm not sure we should take that as a recommendation. But this is where we are now. Two leadership contestants, one who lies and has people calling the police round to his home in the middle of the night, and one who supports criminal activity. They shouldn't be up for becoming Prime Minister. They should be in a reality TV show that involves setting up a sports bar in Costa del Sol and seeing who can make it go bankrupt the quickest. 
After a week of ballots and one excruciating BBC debate where all the candidates sat on stools like they were about to do the commentary for some sort of elitist sport where people hit antiques at orphans, and where the only real winner was a 15-year-old girl called Erin who told them that none of them impressed her, we are left with the final two shit Conservative leadership choices. As if it's actually a choice when it's like choosing between gargling shit from a bucket or having it served in an old shoe. Ziplocked awful, Dominic Raab was the first to leave, which felt appropriate. Then was Red Skull with anemia, Rory Stewart, which put a stop to his shit similes about Brexit being like too many bin bags in a bin, or Parliament having a door and him needing to find the key. Luckily, he was like someone no one liked, and then had to leave the contest. Then on Thursday morning, Egg Art Sajid Javid got the least votes, so it was great for him to finally see what it's like being booted out without his consent. Finally, the line was drawn at, oh god, what's that in the back of your fridge and how long has it been there, Michael Gove, whereby he probably tried to snort it. Hunt's campaign has so far involved taking a picture of himself in an empty airport lounge, saying that he's on his way to Scotland where they want a third runway at Heathrow. Yes, he's tried to sell the need for an unpopular polluting idea by saying people who live nowhere near it want it, which there's no evidence to say they do, in a picture showing a total lack of demand. I mean, not only that, but he's flying from London to Scotland, which is terrible for the planet. Though, to be fair, that could be because he's aware that until something changes, bone helmet Chris Grayling is still in charge of trains. At a conference in Birmingham, Hunt said that he had been at a business employing 350 people with a 4% margin and so a 10% tariff would wipe them out. But if he had to do it, he would. Brilliant. So much like Trump's racist comments about Sadiq Khan, Hunt agrees with the sentiment of Boris's fuck business statement from last year, but just with different words. Boris's campaign has, of course, included the fracker at his own home, which he's refused to talk about, saying that he doesn't think people want to hear about that. But for some reason, he did seem to think that we all wanted to hear him talking about negotiating trade deals with the EU in the implementation period after we leave without the withdrawal agreement, something that isn't possible as the implementation period is part of the withdrawal agreement. But hey, that's fine, as it's not as if it's anything new to have someone in charge who hasn't got a clue how to negotiate Brexit. And that's not the only area where Boris is being compared to the former Tory leader Theresa May. The other is on his reluctance to take on Jeremy Hunt in a debate on Sky News, which is really pathetic as I'm pretty sure a bag of discarded chips could debate Jeremy Hunt and win. Hunt wouldn't debate with a junior doctor once during the junior doctor strike when he was being the worst health secretary of all time. And as we know, all junior doctors are extremely overtired. So why is Boris so very scared? Is it because having both of them next to each other in a room would just show us that all of this is completely pointless as either one will willingly despite also probably unwittingly, drive the UK so far into the ground that we'll end up under Australian jurisdiction. Leader of the SNP Westminster Group and every drawing in a textbook about a medieval baker, Ian Blackford, called Boris a racist during Prime Minister's question time and when asked to withdraw his allegation by the Speaker, he just listed all the racist things Boris has said and the Speaker didn't bother asking him again. So while everything is more rock bottom than the thing's bum, it's at least nice to know that sometimes PMQs does contain actual facts. Again, none of this will change the minds of those who get to vote in this anyway, as a YouGov poll of Tory members showed most would choose Brexit over keeping their party alive, saving the UK economy, or Scotland or Northern Ireland staying in the Union. The only option where they'd choose to ditch Brexit would be if it led to Labour leader and rejected Coen Brothers film extra Jeremy Corbyn becoming Prime Minister, which doesn't make sense, as if Brexit happened and caused the economy to crash, the Conservatives to die out and Scotland to leave, chances are high that as a dozen or so Conservatives would back a no-confidence vote, Corbyn would be the next PM anyway. Hey, I guess as long as the Conservatives get to ruin it and not someone from Labour, then it's all okay. It's completely pointless ideological petty destruction. If we can't win, then no one must win. They'd rather own a child-biting dog than make sure their own children are safe, but if Corbyn wanted to pat that dog, they'd probably have to shoot it in the face. 67% of those surveyed also believe that parts of Britain operate under Sharia law, and 45% think there are parts of Britain that non-Muslims can't enter. I think the only way out of this terrible future would be to persuade all the Conservative members that actually they're right about all of this, and all the bits that they can't enter is in fact everywhere outside of their front door, meaning they can never leave their homes and the rest of us might actually have a decent life. Of course, no one would check in on them either, as that would just be invading their privacy. In other news, still Prime Minister Theresa May released a video on the newly created Windrush Day, where, as she put it, she gave thanks to those pioneering men and women, a bit like General Custer doing a video for Native American Day. May announced a Windrush memorial that would be built in Waterloo Station, something that the Windrush Foundation have said is rubbish as they wanted one in Brixton and Waterloo had nothing to do with Windrush at all. Typical May, not bothering to find out where something belongs and instead just deciding for it without anyone involved getting a say. 
Former Deputy PM, Facebook's Vice President of Global Affairs and paid-up cannon fodder Nick Clegg has announced that there's no evidence that Russia influenced the Brexit result via Facebook. Chances are, though, that he agreed to say that in exchange for Facebook making some pointless change, like allowing him to have five more friends than anyone else. Except they'll change it to be him having five less friends or no friends at all, and then he'll have sold himself out and have to back an option he doesn't want before resigning and then getting employed by LinkedIn. Paul Crowther, the man and hero who threw milkshake at giant walking scallop and leader of the Brexit party, Nigel Farage, has been ordered to pay for Farage's dry cleaning bill by the court. Compensation for the criminal damage done to his lapel microphone, distress and inconvenience, all of which adds to a fine of £520. A fundraiser was set up within minutes of the charge and is already on just under £2,500. So hopefully what Paul has learned from all this is that he could soak Farage at least three more times and have some spare to maybe lob a yakko at the end. And lastly, oh, this is really weird, but... Liam Fox is total disgrace. Liam Fox, what a waste of space. Liam Fox, just look at his face like a rubbish contestant on the chase. Claiming expenses, taking his friend all over the place. Liam Fox, what a total disgrace. Liam Fox, what a total disgrace. Like a bad document you can't erase. Like when someone only types in lowercase. Liam Fox, what a total disgrace. Liam Fox, what a total disgrace. Disgraced MP Liam the Disgraced Fox was on the Andrew Marr show on BBC One on Sunday and said that Boris Johnson's claims that world trade rules could be used after Brexit to avoid tariffs isn't true. What? I know, he said something actually factually correct and dispelled someone else's bullshit. What has happened? How has the man who said Brexit would be the easiest deal in history and that he'd have trade deals coming out of his bumhole by midnight of our leaving day now suddenly the most sensible man in politics? What the fuck is this? What next? Is Nadine Dorries going to suddenly present a list of why there's no credible evidence that Iran attacked those tankers? No, of course not. She would never do that. She's an idiot. That won't happen. Look, seriously though, where are we if Liam Fox is the voice of truth? Has he been pretending all along? Was he visited by the three ghosts of Brexit past? present and future? Is this the real Liam Fox who's been imprisoned behind an iron mask for years unable to escape the wrath of his evil twin William Fox? Or is it just that now he's backing Hunt? Yes, a fox back in a hunt. <laughs> See that? Weird, isn't it? That he hates Boris even more than he hates the truth. Where will this go? As Boris gets closer to number 10, will we find Fox renouncing his entire past? As Adam Werity holds him on his shoulders, the two of them singing a song about exactly what's plausible in a withdrawal agreement? We can't even rely on our disgraced lying idiots anymore. God, things are so screwed. Greetings, Parpol Brods. It is a muggy, horrible day here today, uh, to the extent that I can't even wear my headphones to record this, or I'm concerned my ears will melt, and then next time I need my sunglasses, I'll have to attach them to my face with blue tack, which will probably also melt, and then people will think I'm wearing Braveheart-style war paint all wrong and trying to eat my sunglasses, and no one will come near me. Actually, that sounds brilliant. I'll just pop my headphones on. Hang on. How's you? It's been a grim old week for news, hasn't it? With Conservative MPs and right-wing commentators basically lining up to criticise people who report crime, back people who attack women and fraudsters. I had a weird realisation the other day when it occurred to me that while I want everything to be better in general, even if the Tories could just at least pretend not to be total bastards, it'd be a bit better. You know, at least try to have some sort of moral compass instead, like this past week has shown, having no hesitation to embrace pack mentality and defend their own prize morons regardless of what they do. I mean, I'm starting to believe that Boris Johnson could spend the rest of his campaign flicking turds at babies while telling puppies to go fuck themselves and his core fan base would just blame everyone else for being upset by his creative manner. I just want to know, off the record or whatever, if all of these, say, Boris supporters um, are just walking off camera in their interviews or, you know, turning off the radio mics and then just exhaling and saying out loud, oh, God, why is Johnson such a cock? Why does he make this so hard? Or is it a genuine Emperor's New Clothes and the moment is just too exciting and bewildering and they're all running along with it in the hope that no-one will do a documentary about it in 20 years' time where they'll end up admitting to offering oral sex to a customs official in order to get Brexit through and that it was their idea to get Jar Rule on board. It's also baffling and frighteningly America-like. I was watching the new series of Handmaid's Tale last night and all the while I just kept thinking, well, if Gilead started happening here, our currently governing party would probably just say that it was all necessary as those women could have had potential weapons and that no one would have made a fuss if lefties hadn't interfered. Exhausting. All of it. Uh, which is why there's no podcast next week. Uh, I'm on a very long overdue week's holiday. Hooray! Uh, there's not going to be one for a week. Basically, uh, we've decided that we're so exhausted that there'd be nothing more relaxing than trying to take our little one on a plane, which she'll probably hate, and then to somewhere else in the world where we can frantically try not to let her smash her face into dangerous things. But hey, a change of somewhere to be exhausted is as good as a rest, right? 
Well, probably not. But this show will be back on the 9th of July, meaning that I'll still have to watch the news while I'm away, which will completely ruin being away. Uh, but it's not like anything's happening, is it? Anyway, a chance that it'll just be yet more stories about how both potential leaders are two of the worst humans that have ever existed. And unless some sort of deity or extraterrestrial beams down to say, hey, we didn't create you to be this shit, then I really don't see that I'll be missing out on much. Then uh, there'll be three more podcasts after that before a long summer break till September where we'll all just pretend that things are all right. What it does mean, though, is that your ears get a week off this noise, so why not use your time wisely to um, listen to any older episodes you missed? Listen to this one episode on constant repeat for the whole two weeks. Both of the above. I mean, sadly, I have no other ideas. There's probably not anything else you could possibly do i think those are the only options uh, for things you could do with your life for a whole two weeks oh no wait uh, you could also donate to the uh, ko-fi ko-fi.com forward slash parpol bro account or patreon.com forward slash parpol bro to buy me a cold beverage that i can pretend to enjoy while away but instead will leave on the side and forget while i'm trying to stop my daughter from getting her face trapped in a sun lounger or something both of those links will be in the pod blurb and of course please do also review the show in all the reviewy show places thank you to whichever of you champs hit the five stars on on the iTunes this past week. More of that, pleasey please. Uh, no other admin this week, apart from my Camden Fringe shows at the Camden Comedy Club on August the 4th at 8pm and 5th at 6.30pm, which so far have sold two tickets, and I'm pretty sure that's to my parents. So, so please come, as I really don't wish to reenact that classic Maria Bamford special. Um, please, please come. Ticket link is in the pod blurb. I may do something with the show after August and hopefully take it to places other than London, but it kind of depends on how traumatised I am by doing an entire hour just to my mum and dad. Please come along, please, please. Please do it. Please come along. On this week's show, I have a chat with Heidi Larson at the Vaccine Confidence Project as there is an increase in people preferring measles to not measles, which is not right and therefore not preferable to right. Plus a mini catch up on a handful of things that aren't about the political bungle or haunted cheese string battling it out. So let's start with a bit of this. The fact that I don't currently have smallpox means that I'm a big fan of the vaccines. Not the English indie rock band, as I'm too old to be a fan of them, and I couldn't even name you one of their songs. Go and ask me, can you name one of the vaccine songs, Tiernan? No, no idea. See, I told you, what a waste of time that was. Why'd you do it? Um, I said it. Like, why would you bother... Uh, strange idiots I was of course talking about medical vaccines which have over their time wiped out or nearly wiped out smallpox which is the mini version of pox uh, polio which I don't even think is in the Olympics anymore uh, tetanus which you used to get if you had a Game Boy rabies uh, which is the collective term for royal babies yellow fever which went out of fashion last autumn measles aka human dot to dot mumps aka everyone looks like Matt Hancock disease whooping cough when even your illness can't resist the party rinderpest which is when you're harassed by an TV court show judge and hip which has really affected the scottish football league of course that isn't what any of those mean uh, they were all really horrible diseases but thanks to medical immunization wonders a lot more people get to survive those things or avoid them altogether than they used to while the majority of people around the world trust vaccines and don't particularly want rabies there is a growing mistrust in them of seven to eight percent people globally according to a survey by the Wellcome Trust. But in places like Western Europe, 22% of people don't think they're safe, and that's leading to measles making a comeback less appreciated than the All Saints one last year. Anti-vaxxers are a big old movement when they aren't too ill to move places. And in recent weeks, even Jessica Biel, who's most well known for sort of vaguely existing, came out as being an anti-vaxxer, which I think may have helped others gain trust in them again. Measles outbreaks were up 300% last year compared to the year before, with 259 cases in England in 2017 and then a whopping 966 in 2018, meaning children who hadn't had their vaccines were very easily spotted. Arf. The Department of Health has mentioned the possibility of banning unvaccinated children from school to avoid outbreaks, and there are even talks of vaccines becoming compulsory, like in France. But what would be better than either of those things is just encouraging people to trust in extensive research and science and prefer some not-measles to measles. So this week I spoke to Professor Heidi Larson from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, which my stupid brain always makes me assume it's medicine that's pineapple flavoured, but it's, it's not, that's not it at all. Heidi is the founding director of the Vaccine Confidence Project, whose purpose is to monitor public confidence in immunisation programmes and find out how to encourage people to trust in them. They do extensive research in areas of high and low vaccine coverage and look at just what the reasons are for people believing that being vaccinated is worse for you than being covered head to toe in red spots and potential brain inflammation, which can happen. I've just read about it. it sounds really horrible. So I spoke to Heidi all about how bad the current levels of mistrust are and what they mean, why people don't believe in medicine anymore, and as you'll hear towards the end, a little bit about parental quibbles at vaccinating your little one, which weren't really quibbles at all, and as you'll hear, ice cream really helped. Me and my daughter, that is. Anyway, I hope you enjoy. Here is Heidi. 
Hi, Heidi. Um, what have been the effects of people turning against immunisations? We've heard about there being sort of a large measles outbreak in the US um, and in the UK, but what has that actually been? Have uh, other illnesses kind of come back because of it? What's, you know, are, are we getting the full story? Well, I think uh, measles is the beginning of the tide because it's the most highly infectious of all preventable diseases um, and uh, vaccine-preventable diseases, I should say. Uh, so it's the first that we're going to we see uh, because, you know, if, if coverage, if vaccine acceptance dips below, say, 95%, you start to see the outbreaks of measles. There's a number of other uh, things that we're vaccinated against um, that are going to take a little longer to show up um, when there's under vaccination because they're, you know, they don't, they're not as infectious. But we're already starting to see mumps, rubella, uh, some of the other classic ones that have been in check are starting to show up again. And is, is that all it takes, just less than 95%? Because to me, 95% sounds like a very high number, which... You know, I, I sort of would hear that and think, wow, quite a lot of people are getting vaccinated. That's great. But it, that's literally all it takes is is sort of 6% not getting it. And, and we start seeing the effects of that. Yeah. I mean, it's it's about it's about that. Some people say between you now 93 and 95. But yeah, it's it's pretty specific to that for measles, for measles. Others, as I mentioned, is um, uh, a little you need a bit less. So why has the anti-vaccination movement sort of grown? Um, and is it just, I mean, it seems very prominent in the US. Are we seeing a big rise in the UK and other countries as well? Or is it limited to mainly America? Oh, not at all limited to America. In terms of, um, this has a, been a growing, um, I mean, keeping in mind that still the majority of the population are uh, pretty confident. It, I would. I think the way to see it is it's eroding at the edges, um, and it's come to a point where that was a, you know, having some deniers on the edges when it was small edges was one thing, but it's starting to eat in more to the broader confidence, and it's not. Um, it's really quite global, but in different ways. Um, uh, and for different reasons. So not not just it, not just in the Western world. Oh, not at all. No, we see it. Um, uh, and even while kind of the majority of populations again are confident, we've seen new waves of particularly uh, enabled by social media of these kind of like pop up scares. Um, sometimes people um purposefully trying to undermine a government program. They'll send some uh, email, which is false. Uh, like in Pakistan, there was one circulating about children fainting after a vaccine, which created a real panic. And it wasn't, it wasn't real. Um, and we've had other cases where explicitly anti-vaccine negative sentiments spread on WhatsApp and Facebook in in India, in Malaysia, in Indonesia, um, and it's it's very disruptive. It doesn't have to be the majority of the population to to disrupt a program. And where does it come from? Because I, you know, I remember in the UK that there was, um, you know, Andrew Wakefield and his supposed report, which obviously is, you know, was in, was then revealed to be sort of data manipulation. But but it, where where does it come from in in the rest of the world? And what is it that causes people to lose confidence is it part of the whole you know attitude we're seeing where they're not just you know people are refusing to believe in government and media and things like that is that part of the same thing it's it's certainly part of the broader environment of distrust and when you think about it um vaccines touch pretty much every life on the planet um and uh human life and actually a lot of animals too um but um, it, it's regulated, recommended, um, and sometimes required by government. So if you've got an issue with the government, that's one place you can play it out. Um, it's produced by, uh, business, by the private sector largely. Um, and so if you've got issues on any of those fronts and then add to that alternative beliefs, sometimes it's not explicitly 
you know, anti-vaccine, but pro-something else. Um, they prefer, and there's a, a very a strong growing trend of back to nature, um, anti-chemical, anti, um, you know, it, it's a kind of identity which is uh, really pro-natural foods, no chemicals, um, home births, um, and increasingly people are adding into that mix a vaccine-free childhood. So that's, um, it's not like that's the beginning of it, but it's getting embedded into other belief systems um, and sometimes religious. I mean, for instance, in, you know, uh, pork uh, is porcine uh, is in some vaccines for the gelatin, either in an oral vaccine or sometimes in a in nasal flu vaccine. And for, you know, Muslims and, and, and in Jewish, the, the, Porcine is sometimes um, rejected, even though at the highest religious authorities have said it's remote enough from the pig that, and it's for, you know, saving a life that it's okay. Um, it really depends on the interpretation of the local religious leader. And what what do you you know you said that there've been sort of adverts and you know that that's a crisis of. Uh... Uh, pork in, in was it in Pakistan you said that happened and it, you know th- these the, the people making the adverts what do they have to gain from that why is there you know th- that's that's what I find very hard to understand um what what why would people be kind of making a stand at, against vaccines in that way is that a, just a genuine belief that they're harmful in some way well sometimes it is but uh, sometimes it's because they want to disrupt a government program that they don't you know, if they're trying to get back at government because they have some grudge um, or they, you know, if it's an international vaccination effort, if they think it's, you know, an intervention of the West um, and they don't want to, you know, participate in it um, and they don't trust it. Uh, and sometimes that motivates these kinds of things. And is it, I mean, it's sort of... Uh... Yeah, I was trying to think of how to ask this without sounding like just uh, for devil's advocate's sake, I suppose. But is there, you know, should there be any concern about vaccines and immunizations? Are they monitored and tested as seriously as they should be? Um, I know one of the sort of conspiracy theories about it is, you know, vaccine overload. Is that remotely possible? Could that ever happen? Well, there's been a lot of um, studies on, I think vaccines are one of the most um the levels of regulation and and robustness in terms of the safety around vaccines is is tremendous and we probably have the safest vaccines we've ever had in history because they go through so many processes from the beginning right through to delivery and then repeated checks um, but you know there are uh, there are small risks uh, for vaccines like just about everything else, most medicines you take have the risks that you open the little pamphlet inside the box. Um, and, uh, and vaccines do too, but, um, most of them, most of the risks are very minor, kind of redness or swelling, um, sometimes a bit of irritation, but that resolves itself quite quickly. Sometimes you get feverish. Um, but, um, there are some very rare serious adverse events, uh, and that's. Um, but it's extremely rare, and relative to the lives that get saved with vaccines, um, you know, it's it's the risk uh, that gets taken at a at a population level. Um, but I think that that's where some people um, argue argue. Uh, that even that one small risk in a in a million, um, I don't want to take that risk. Particularly in a context, I think the other part of that equation is that, um, as they say, uh, victims of their own success, vaccines have done such a great job of reducing, if not eradicating, um, uh, disease that people don't see and um, appreciate the the. Uh, the risk of the disease. So the, f- the shift is the focus on any remote risk of the vaccine. 
sure because that's suddenly more dangerous than measles that they don't see for example or uh yeah until this past year yeah of course <laughs> right. of course yeah. and is that you know sort of uh hadn't really occurred to me to you saying that a vaccine's the same all the way around the world is, is for example the mmr vaccine we get in the uk exactly the same as the one in the us and you know is there a universal kind of system with vaccines there's definitely a global um system of uh, recommendations and standards uh, and every year, all the countries in the world, um, there's a kind of coordinated global effort because, you know, if there's an outbreak in one place, it risks other places. Um, I mean, you can see the, the measles in New York has traveled from from Israel, and then there's other places that, I mean, the outbreak in Disneyland, uh, as, as I understand, that was a, a strain of measles from the Philippines. I mean, these, so the, it's really important to keep a global uh, system, uh, because the, the implications are global. If in fact, things get, um, the diseases start spreading. Um, the, the specific vaccines that are given in different countries, um, may be slightly different, but for instance, in some countries they give just, uh, measles rubella, they call it MR, uh, and some get MMR, um, it depends on the setting. There's also, you know, different preparations of vaccines. Some of them are more combinations. Some of them, and some of them is depends on what a country can afford. Um, just in terms of um, not the overall recommended vaccines, but the ones that are beyond the, the basic vaccines. But there are some kind of foundational vaccines that are are really in every country in the world. Right, I think that I think that makes it more reassuring. To be honest, <laughs> I, I think I, mm-hmm. I think it's nicer to know that it's, it's something that works all the way uh, around the world. Um, so, I mean, in terms of getting people to to stop being anti-vaxxers, or you know, I mean, France have now made vaccines mandatory, um, and I know that the health secretary Matt Hancock was talking about not ruling that out. Although I don't know if he'll still be health secretary for much longer. Who knows what will happen there? Um, is that the right way to do it? Is 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 forcing people to take Take them the right way to do it because obviously if they don't trust the government surely that would make them trust them even less wouldn't it well i think we have to shift the lens on f- forcing um this is uh when they say mandating vaccines they mean that in order to go it's not like you're born and you have to you're already as an individual mandated to take a vaccine it's, it's about going to school and not spreading it to others. It's about working in a hospital and not spreading flu to others. Um, the, the whole reason for um, any kind of vaccine mandate is, is really to protect the broader public. Um, so I think the, the focus in the resistance to mandates is always from, is most often, well, pretty much always from the perspective of the individual wanting their choice and the reality is this is really about when that right to individual choice starts to risk other people's lives. And so in that sense, I think there are situations when, uh, especially with a highly uh, infectious or dangerous illness, that um, a disease that uh, requiring uh, certain vaccines to go to school or to participate, to work in an environment with a lot of vulnerable people, such as in a hospital or, or nursing home or whatever, um, uh, is, is not an unreasonable thing. Um, but I, I think if you can manage without it, I, that's the, I, that's ideal, but it's just, uh, how many people would put their seatbelts on with, without a (laughs) legislation. I mean, I know it's a little different in terms of it's more, you know, it has different implications than just a seatbelt, but just, just as a reflection on human behavior. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We'll be back with Heidi in a minute, but first, you might assume that what with all the endless noise of the Conservative leadership race going on, the relentless scrabbling sound of frantic damage limitation, that not much else is happening in the political sphere. Well, assume makes an ass of you and me, as really awful people say, but who doesn't like ass? There's not loads of things going on, but there are a few bits and bobs that are worth a mention. And so that's what this week's middle bit is for. A bit for some bits, if you like. There may also be some bobs. Who can say? I can. There's no bobs. In England and Wales, there's currently a 195-year-old law that makes it illegal to be a rough sleeper. I mean, that's incredible cruelty for an impossible situation, right? You've ended up on hard times, you can't afford to have a roof over your head, well, now you're a criminal by default, and here's a fine of £1,000 that you'll never, ever get to pay back. That's harder to win than that time as children me and my friends played the game where the floor's all lava in a room with absolutely no climbable furniture on it at all. What are you meant to do except submit to the lava because all the rules are against you? The law was originally created to clear the streets of soldiers returning from the Napoleonic Wars. Which is nice, right? I mean, it's a regular xenophobic dig that France never win any wars, but is it really any better winning them than making all your soldiers criminals? Obviously, Napoleon isn't as much of a problem anymore, but rising homelessness is, increasing by 70% in the last five years. There were 1,320 prosecutions under the Act just last year, none of which helped anyone to find accommodation. It's like treating a wound by attempting to kick it better. Scotland repealed the Act in 1982, instead creating legislature to deal with antisocial and criminal behaviour. But that hasn't happened in England and Wales. Police, MPs and the charity crisis are all asking for the law to be scrapped and the Housing and Homeless Minister has said that a review will be carried out in due course. Let's hope it doesn't take another 200 years. In Parliament this week, a bill is being discussed to allow for no-fault divorces to happen if people just don't like each other but don't fully hate each other. If you get divorced right now, not while listening to this show, that would be a bit much, then you basically have to sue each other for who gets what, who has to deal with the children when and have their weekends ruined, and if you have irreconcilable differences, then one of you has to say that the other has unreasonable behaviours and list them, and if you're the one with the unreasonable behaviour, you don't get the right to reply, meaning that you can't point out that maybe your snoring is like nature's white noise and that you never take the bins out because you're worried they'll get cold and won't someone just care for the bins? Either that or you blame adultery, which means that you have to include someone else in it all. And basically, we can all sympathise with what Boris Johnson is going through. Ha, I joke. But the introduction of a no-fault divorce would mean that the whole thing is less finger-pointing and blaming. And you can just get a divorce because, as the term would state, there has been an irretrievable breakdown. Something that the government know all about with Brexit. It's a much nicer way to do it. It should be potentially much easier on children too. And all in all, feels like an actually progressive step. If anything, if this passes in the Commons, which it most likely will, maybe it should also be used on Brexit, and perhaps the EU could just let us claim an irretrievable breakdown. At least that would stop any suspicions that we've been secretly bedding with Russia. Thanks to brilliant campaigners at Campaign Against Arms Trade, who I spoke to way back on episode 30, the Court of Appeal has ruled that it's now unlawful for the UK to licence military equipment to Saudi Arabia while they're engaged in the war in Yemen. 
If you didn't know, and again, head back to episode 108 with Fred Carver at the UNA UK, Saudi Arabia has been at the helm of a humanitarian catastrophe in Yemen, with over 100,000 people dead since 2015, 250,000 displaced and 24 million people in need of aid, 10 million of which are relying solely on food aid just to survive. The UK government, rather oddly, has both been sending aid to the crisis while also supplying Saudi Arabia with £4.7 billion of weapons since 2015 that they've been using to oppress the Yemeni people. It's a bit like the whole Vagrancy Act thing where you can't help but feel that one effort really doesn't help the other. feels like buying someone a toothbrush while punching all their teeth out. Thanks to Campaign Against Arms Trade, judges have said that there is a clear risk that arms sold by the UK to Saudi may be used for serious violation of international humanitarian law. While the licences would not be scrapped straight away, they'd all be reviewed, and even disgraced MP Liam the Disgraced Fox has said that they won't grant any new ones till the judgement has been considered. Yes, Liam Fox said that, what the fuck is happening? I was totally expecting him to say that if the UK don't sell Saudi arms, then someone else will, like they always do as though it's important that people in Yemen only die by the highest quality British bullets. However, Theresa May did say, with all her usual warmth and humanity, that the government was disappointed and that they will appeal, because as far as she's concerned, they aren't white, so if they die over there, she won't have to worry about deporting them from here. Amnesty International has said the judgment is a major step towards preventing further bloodshed, so it's a good thing, and hopefully it won't be overturned anytime soon, just because our nearly-gone Prime Minister thinks it should. And now, back to Heidi. The Vaccine Confidence Project sounds absolutely fascinating. Um, what how, what are you working on there? How do you, or how is the Vaccine Confidence Project working on persuading people that vaccines are in their and their children's best interests, um, especially if they're sort of ideologically against them? Well, the first thing, the whole um, reason for the Vaccine Confidence Project was one, um, I've been working on this topic for almost 20 years and realized at one point that it really needed a group of researchers. And, and also what I saw was that while these issues were becoming more apparent around the world in these questioning and, and resistance and, and emotions about vaccines, um, that the public health and medical community was uncomfortable with knowing how to manage this and, and immunization programs. And I think part of the reason was it seemed like it was fringe. It was not fact. It was just emotions. Uh, but I think uh, what the, we set out to do here was to start to get some metrics and, and you know, get some with our vaccine confidence index to, uh, to make it more tangible, to make it more um, practical that you could work against or towards if your numbers are low that you could raise them. But then also to understand, well, what's driving all these reasons? Because I think one of the, the early and sometimes persisting reasons for this um, disconnect with the public health community and the public is that uh, that sometimes the public health community or medical community would send information out or however they would communicate would is very much driven by what the public health medical community thinks is important for the public. And not that that's incorrect, but a lot of the times, um, sometimes the reason is not about information or it's not about um, what the public health community thinks the reason is. So I thought there was a real gap in listening um, and that in order to actually be able to address some of these issues, we need to better understand what they are. And so really for the last 10 years, we've been trying to characterize it. And in the meanwhile, there's, um, you know, a broader community of researchers from dis different disciplines um, studying these issues. And I think um, we have a really um, good body of work globally that's starting to understand the different types of issues, because then it means you need a different intervention. Um, if someone has an anxiety about a vaccine because they don't trust the health professional or they had a really bad experience at the clinic and the, you know, the medical, the health authorities are just giving them more information, thinking that's why they're not coming, it's not going to fix it. But if you understand and listen to them and they say, actually, I wasn't treated well the last time and I don't want to go back or, you know, it wasn't convenient or... So we need to understand because maybe it's something much more straightforward and, and giving things like information or other 
interventions that are not what the problem is aggravates the situation. So uh, we're increasingly moving more into um, different kinds of responses because we've spent a lot of time trying to understand what the reasons are. And now we're, as a group, moving more and more into trying out different interventions and particularly uh, doing a lot more in the area of social media, which is really uh, a critical influencer we're seeing. That's fascinating. Do you, do you find... Uh what is it about social media that you because obviously uh, that's where a lot of misinformation goes up but if you're putting actual information and you know as you say trying to listen to people is it is it useful for you for the vaccine confidence project in terms of finding people's stories and responses or is it useful for you to be able to put out actual info how are you finding it most useful well we started um a decade ago with monitoring mostly online news media but have increasingly been, and that was to listen. Uh, but the whole, um, you know, social media landscape has changed dramatically. In the meanwhile, as we've grown, and we're listening more and more and more to uh, social media, because it helps us hear from the public um, where the issues and concerns are. And I think increasingly, we're thinking about ways that social media can engage and respond um, to some of those. Uh, in Denmark, for instance, where there were some anxieties around the HPV vaccine and a drop in uptake, um, one of the things that was really important in turning around um, in building confidence was um, having a, a group of young um, uh, teenagers and, and young women come and co-create a social media strategy with the health um, uh, officials to reach out to their peers. And it was very effective. And I think we need more of that uh, collaborative approach. And the, the advantage of social media, it's not just about pushing information out, but it's about dialogue and it's about listening. And I think that's one of the biggest um, uh problems we've had and, and contributors to this um, polarization now is we've lost the conversation and we need to build more time in and more opportunities for dialogue between public and we need ears, not just, um, you know, uh, pushing out strategies, but listening. Sure, I think that applies to an awful lot in uh, today's society at the moment. Uh, yeah, and, and absolutely. Sort of definitely how, <laughs> you know, where you can see where politics has got most volatile, it always seems to be because it's rather, it's sort of didactic rather than listening in, in, in many cases. Um, I wondered how, you know, how difficult it is dealing with parents. I, I'm a parent and I've got a, a 15-month-old daughter and we, we gave her all her vaccines, which was, uh, I think, which I, we wanted to do, but I have to say watching her get injected was really, you know, it's, it's always oh, a tricky hard. thing, isn't it? <laughs> but it, but it's, it, at the same time, there's a lot of noise around that at the time of looking up, you know, whether we should get a vaccine. You see, you know, there's quite a lot of anti-vaxxer sites that appear and things. But is it, it must be hard dealing with parents because that's a whole different set of emotions that come into it because they're worried about their children's safety foremost. Is, is that, is that one of the biggest hurdles do you think? Um, well, I think uh, what parents themselves or parents anxieties. Yeah. Parents anxieties because uh, yeah, that's what, yeah. I, I, I just sort of feel like in talking to other parents often uh, it's harder to confront their views on things because you know, obviously their child matters first, which is why I gave my daughter the vaccines. But to them, that's it's the other way around. You know, it seems to be a harder thing to tackle than talking to an adult about their own vaccinations. Yeah. I mean, I think when you have a an, an infant that looks healthy and, you know, <laughs> um, I, I think it's a mix of things. I think that um, it depends on the issue. Sometimes it's just a very... They've heard about some uh, vaccine scare, which may or may not be true, um, but uh, sometimes it's a different belief. Uh, sometimes it's just, as you say, it's just the uh, one. Th uh, it's the anxiety about just the actual vaccination um, uh, experience of the child. Uh, but I think one of the other things that has comes up again and again. Um, is that the the number of vaccines you know isn't that too much for my little baby and 
you know, I think it's it's a reasonable question for, and I think we should never discourage questioning of, of parents. It's very responsible for parents to be asking questions. Um, but um, I think that I, the issue of too many vaccines, uh, there's no evidence of any um, problem with the number of vaccines. Um, I think it's just the, you know, it's... It, there are a lot more vaccines now than there were uh, certainly when I was getting vaccinated. Um, and on the one hand, that's a great thing in terms of, you know, uh, public health value. But I, I understand the, the, the parental uh, concerns about that. But to answer your earlier question, uh, there's no evidence of risk of too many vaccines. Sure, sure. I mean, I, to, to be fair, I should say to the listeners that my uh, my daughter was absolutely fine, and uh, especially if with some ice cream after the jabs, she quickly oh, forgave yes. us. It was all right. <laughs> <laughs> it's always a good method. Um, and I uh, thanks so much for uh, speaking to me today, Heidi. I just one last question, which is what I ask all the guests for this show, um, which is that apart from yourself and the Vaccine Confidence Project, um, what other groups, writers, researchers would you recommend that listeners follow or um, read up on on the subject of vaccinations or just tackling misinformation and public distrust? Well, I think, um, I mean, here in the UK, any, at any rate, um, there's uh, the vaccine knowledge uh, group out of Oxford is some very good information. I think that um, uh, the fact, fact, there's a lot more fact checking around. Of course, NHS, um, Public Health England, um, I mean, I, I think it's important to make sure that, you know, the, the basic and local information is there. And, and there's a number of international WHO, but WHO is more global standards and may not address the individual. It doesn't tend to address the individual questioning that parents may have. Um, yeah, there are, there are different groups in, in the U.S. and in, in different countries. I know the... Uh, the European uh, Commission has be- become very proactive in this area and really trying to invest in, uh, you know, thinking about ways to have better strategies because they recognize that there are some challenges um, in in the region. Thanks so much to Heidi for that. Uh, you can find her on Twitter at Prof Heidi Larson and the Vaccine Confidence Project is at vaccineconfidence.org, which is full of research and archives should you wish to look up anything to do with various vaccine tests or indeed the causes and loss of confidence in them. Heidi is a professor at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine who are also on Twitter at LSHTM and their website is lshtm.ac.uk and both are full of fascinating research and studies into, well, health and hygiene. Do check them all out. Links to everything, as always, are in the pod blurb and on the website at partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk. Thanks to previous podcast Michael Marshall for recommending I drop Heidi a line. Um, there are only three more podcasts left before the summer break, but I'm still in need of two guests for those. And then I'll obviously need more people to chat to when this show returns in the autumn. So send me your ideas uh, for guests or anything I can patent and earn money from completely failing to credit you. And as you run a rival company with the same product, we'll spend the rest of our lives pointlessly competing until one of us is on our deathbed. And we realise we could have joined forces and made things better all along. But now it's just too late and will mostly be remembered as being arseholes. Actually, just send me guest ideas. It's easier, isn't it? And you can do that via at Bro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast Group on Facebook, the contact page at partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk or via email at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. And after last week, I suggested that you move in next door to me and shout suggestions through the walls like you're having an argument. And then that ended up being fairly prescient. Let me see if I can sway reality yet again. Why not tell me who to interview by running into a wall repeatedly and trying to imprint their name into the bricks with your face? Right, fingers crossed that works. Obviously, if you're not Boris Johnson, it's far, far easier just to email. And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. Cheers to your ears for the listening hustle. And don't forget, there is no podcast next week. So why not use the hour you usually waste on this to do something productive? Like, um, do you know, twiddle your thumbs or twiddle your... Other fingers, they don't really get much twiddling time, do they? Give them some love. Uh, or you can listen to an old episode you've not heard before, review the show on your podcast apps, donate some money to me at ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro or patreon.com forward slash parpolbro to help me out, or maybe just stare into the middle distance, contemplating the meaning of existence, the futility of so many actions, just how great ice cream is, and praying you don't miss your bus stop because you've fallen asleep. 
Thanks loads to Acast, to my brother the Last Skeptic for the music, and do go get his new single, You Make Me One of Brackets Kill, out everywhere now, and to Cat Day for all the linear line and note typing. This won't be back next week, so you'll just have to deal with it. Yeah, deal with it. However, it will be back in two weeks when Boris is found feasting on several children's bones but gets away with it because stupid lefty police discovered him for political reasons and Remainer parents only pretend to care about their kids because they hate democracy. Boris's popularity with the membership increases by 5%. Bye. This week's show is brought to you by Alison Pearson's Difficult Neighbours and How to Solve Them, a new book from the author and human embodiment of frenzied paranoia, in which she'll tell you all the ways you can deal with the kind of scum next door types who think they can go around calling the police like nosy so-and-sos just because they've heard you bludgeoning your husband to death with a mace. Offering to feed your cat while you're on holiday? Read Pearson's Guide and you'll be able to find out if they're ever part of ISIS and you'll have them in a secret court before they can stop your little kitty from starving while you drink until your teeth bleed in the kind of resort where no one makes eye contact with you. Insisting you join the neighbourhood watchers has been some recent car theft? This guide will show you how to claim their KGB, Mossad or secret agents of your choice and go around smashing all their video doorbells with a sharpened stick you use to impale squirrels on. Alison Pearson's Difficult Neighbours and How to Solve Them, available now because good neighbours become dead behind the eyes, never question the regime, good friends. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.